Hey CLA, how are you guys doing? Uh, Cody here, have a pleasure to speak to you this morning. I hope this finds you all doing well. Um, hopefully this is one of the last times that we will be online only because if you know me, you know that me speaking just to a camera in an empty room is actually a lot harder um, than if there's a room full of people. I uh, can't read the audience, you can't do any of that stuff that I like to do. So for me, for you, for everybody, we hope that we can be back seeing you in person again, uh, see your beautiful, lovely faces. But for now, we're gonna do what we can with what we have. And so I'm gonna share with you this morning. Um, I spoke a couple weeks ago on peacemaking and I said that I was gonna make a part two to that series, to that sermon that I had made. And so this last week I've been comprising a message and it turned out to not exactly be a peacemaking part two sermon. Um, it turned into something else and I think it's God breathed and I think it's for our church, it's for us. Um, so I'm gonna go with it. You could maybe argue that this is a message of generosity you could argue that this is a message um, that's going against the current governmental structures that we find ourselves in, or it's just going to get us to analyze kind of where our priorities are, uh, both personally, both as a church and both as a country, as a continent in the world that we find ourselves in today. So we're going to get into this, um, and I'm going to be reading a lot from the Old Testament this morning, actually, which is going to be exciting. I don't usually dive into the Old Testament uh, too deeply as comparatively to the New Testament, but um, we're going to go there and we're going to look at the life of Solomon and we're going to look at uh, different things and nuances and things in texts that maybe we would gloss over normally if we were just reading the stories uh, through as we normally would. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to get into this and head right into it. So uh, God, I just pray for every single person who's watching this, who may be listening to it, either now or later on, um, even if <laughs> it's weird to think that someone could listen to this two years from now and that it could have maybe have an impact on their life. And so God, I pray for those of us present, those of us in the future, um, would they be touched by you? Would your presence come wherever we're listening to this, in our cars, in our rooms? And would you just speak? God, I pray that none of my own words would be used this morning, but God, that I would just be a conduit for your own words, for your own presence, Holy Spirit. God, I pray that um, there would be healing, there would be transformation, there would be um, a changing of mindsets, there would be a changing of what generosity looks like, a changing of what happiness looks like, a changing of um, how we even read the text in the Bible, how we gloss over things that maybe carry some importance to us. And God, I pray that even if we read our Bibles this next week, um, would we pay attention to the small details? And would they speak to us? And would they move us? And would we start asking questions that maybe we haven't asked before? Um, or would we notice things? Would things be highlighted that haven't been highlighted to us before? Or would they be highlighted to us in a new way? And so God, I just bless everyone who's watching in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to go right into it. I'm going to start off in Exodus 1, um, verse 9, we're going to start. And so if you don't know the context of this, if you're newer to church, 
essentially what we're looking at here is the story of the Israelites, the story of God's people um, who God chose to represent himself. And so in this story, we have them who are enslaved. They're enslaved at this time period by the Egyptians, um, by the Pharaoh, who is the leader of the Egyptians. And we're going to dive into this verse. It says, look, he, so they're talking about Pharaoh here, said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, uh, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all of their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So a few things here. Obviously, we can see that these people are expanding, they're growing. And so all of the motivation behind Pharaoh and the Egyptians in this verse in their forced labor is fear and it says that because they're they're afraid of them partnering with neighboring nations and coming against egypt they almost double down on the harshness and the labor that they're forcing the israelites to do and so it says that they were oppressed and they they actually forced them to uh, build pithom and ramses as store cities for pharaoh and so um, in order to build a store city, in order to build storages, there needs to be an influx of resources, an influx of wealth. Um, otherwise, you're going to be building something up that you're not going to fill with anything. And obviously, if they're forcing the Israelites to build more of these store cities, these storage places, um, it means that they've run out of room with the current structure that they have in place. So the Egyptians using the slavery, using forced labor, using other people um, are building and building and building and gaining wealth and gaining resources. And so finally everything is full and they're saying, okay, but we want more. So let's build more storehouses. Let's build more storage cities and let's fill those up as well. And you can see that there's, there's almost this perpetual cycle, this mentality where um, they're never going to have enough because fear is their motivation. And so they constantly want to keep oppressing the Israelites in order to get wealthier and wealthier, to get more powerful, to get more. Um, I'm sure they're buying with their wealth. They're using their resources to buy um, armies and better weapons and chariots and horses and things that are actually going to cause them to, to lower the Israelite status and to raise their own status for themselves. So... That's what I want us to pay attention with in this verse is that especially the storage houses, the storage cities of Pithom and Ramses that they're building up. Um, and I think that's oftentimes if we were just to read that verse at face value, that's something that we would overlook and we would just assume, oh yeah, okay, they're, they're just building things. But we wouldn't look into like, okay, why are they building storage cities? And so um, a lot of us, we, we know the story of the Israelites. We know how it ends. Um, in the story of Exodus, where eventually Moses is called by God, he is a, he has this weird identity issue where he's raised by Egyptians, but he's a Hebrew person, so he he really doesn't know who he is. Am I Egyptian? Am I an Israelite? Am I oppressed? Am I in the place of power? 
And so you can only imagine the dichotomy of his mind of what is going on and his identity issue. And really, he has no idea who he is. And this is probably something that he is dealing with his whole life until he encounters God in a burning bush and he asks God. And sometimes um, I heard an interesting take on this story where he asked God, God, who are you? And God's response was, I am that I am. And this is a beautiful portrait of what God is. God is M. He is everything. He is the essence of everything. But I heard an interesting take where the, the Moses asking God, God, who are you? It's almost as if God is asking God, who am I? Because I don't know who I am. I don't know my identity. I don't know anything. I don't know which way to go. I'm just in this desert and I've kind of abandoned my life, but I don't know what I'm called to. And then God comes and he brings a calling and he brings a destiny to Moses' life. And then eventually we, we know as the story goes that uh, Moses returns to Egypt to free his people, to free the Israelites. And he comes and he tries to coerce Pharaoh into just letting them go. Um, and Pharaoh refuses. And so God sends a plague and he sends another plague and he sends a total of 10 plagues to Pharaoh until eventually Pharaoh is fed up and says, okay, fine, have your people, go do your thing. And um, another interesting side tidbit is that each one of the plagues that was sent, there's a plague of frogs, there's a plague of flies, there's a plague, all these plagues actually represented in a, a specific Egyptian God or goddess that Pharaoh would have worshiped. Um, so each plague, was almost God displaying his dominion over the Egyptian gods and goddesses saying, I'm more powerful than this God of fertility that you have that is in the shape of a frog. So here, let me show you what frogs are really like. And so God is just showing Pharaoh in ways that maybe are far removed from our context of how powerful he is, how he is the I am and how, how he is above all of the other gods that the, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians may be worshiping. And so, Eventually, Moses, he lets his people go, or sorry, Pharaoh lets the people go, and they run away to the desert, and then Pharaoh decides, actually, no, I, I, what am I going to do? I'm not, I can't build up my wealth anymore. I can't use their forced labor to accumulate these things, and I'm not going to enslave my own people. That's preposterous. So he begins to, he gets all of his chariots and his armies and his horses, and he begins to chase after the Israelites again. And as we know, that ends for ends by the Red Sea, which was parted for Moses' people to pass through. It's collapsed in on Pharaoh, um, causing devastation and death and the end of, of that Pharaoh's reign. And obviously, it's not the end of the Egyptian empire. It's not the end of the Egyptian army as a whole. But um, as we learn later on, there, there are a continuation of Pharaohs throughout all of history. And so that's how that story ends. And I want to put a pin on the story of Exodus and Moses. And I want us to look and fast forward a little bit to uh, our good friend, King Solomon, who is all throughout the scriptures, specifically in first and second Kings, we see a lot of his story being unveiled. And so we don't know exactly how much time has passed between the story of Exodus and the story of first Kings. Um, tradition says that there are about 12 generations that have passed between these two people. So we don't know the exact number of years um, and we don't know the exact number of generations even, but tradition says that there's about 12 generations. So Solomon is quite far removed 
from Moses and the people of Israel's journey out of Exodus, out of Egypt. You know, he would have obviously been familiar with the story because that's his people and oral tradition was uh, of the utmost value to them. So he would have heard the story over and over and over again. But the, the, the experience of oppression, the experience of being a slave, the experience of running for your life as there's an army chasing you through the desert and through seas, uh, that experience is very far removed from Solomon. And so we find ourselves in 1 Kings. And First and Second Kings, it covers a historical span of more than 400 years, people say. And we don't know uh, who or how many authors actually made this book of First and Second Kings. Initially, First and Second Kings was just one book, but then we divided it into two. But essentially, it's a historical account of what happened during that 400 years or so. Um, and it starts by describing the final days of King David, which was around 971 BC. And all the stories and the, the things about his success and the conspiracies of David's life. And then David dies in 1 Kings 2.10. And so after David dies, Solomon is the ascended to the throne and established himself as a strong and as a wise, wise leader. And in the early years of Solomon's reign, Israel experienced its glory days, as we would put in quotations. So Israel is no longer the slave uh, that the Egyptians' he, uh, foot is over their neck. It's, they're no longer that place. Their influence, their economy, their military power, um, all are exploding with fruition and with um, just unprecedented wealth in all areas of their lives. None of their neighbors pose a, a strong military threat. And so it's quite the contrary. It's quite the 180 from the people of Israel, um, their experience during Egypt times, and now during the time of King Solomon, where essentially uh, the roles have been reversed, as we're going to go into. So I want to read here out of 1 Kings uh, chapter 9, starting at verse 15. And it says, uh, Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. In verse 16, it says, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had, had attacked and captured Gezer. So here we are again, 400 years later, a different Pharaoh. The, the Egyptians are still, they're still around. They're still a people. And so it says that the king of Egypt had attacked and captured Gezer. He had set it on fire and he killed its Canaanite inhabitants and then gave it up as a wedding gift to his daughter, who was Solomon's wife. And then Solomon rebuilt Gezer and he built up the lower Beth Horon, the Baloth and Tadmor in the desert within his land, as well as all his store cities and the towns for his chariots and for his horses. Whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and throughout all of the territory he ruled. And so if you're tracking with me, which some of you may, some of you may not be yet, here we have um, almost a parallel description of what the king is doing, um, both Pharaoh in the Exodus story and now King Solomon in 1 Kings, where King Solomon is using forced labor and if you don't know what forced labor is, that is slavery um, to build up the empire that he now inhabits. He's building up the Lord's temple. He's building up his own palace, the terraces or gardens. He's building a wall around Jerusalem. 
and he's building up Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And so oftentimes we can look over these words and we can just see that they're weird Hebrew names and we can just kind of gloss over them. But Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer were all military bases. And so especially Gezer is highlighted later on where it says that it was set fire by Pharaoh um, and because the Canaan, to, to capture it from the Canaanites who had inhabited it. And then he gave it as a wedding gift to his daughter, who is Solomon's wife. So in essence, Pharaoh gifted Solomon back this military base of Gezer because Solomon was married to his daughter. And so if the correlations aren't adding up to you quite yet, we have some more work to do here. But we can see that Israel has become the new Egypt. We can see that God's people who were once oppressed and who were crying out for liberation, God, we need you. We need you to help us. We, we're being oppressed, have actually become the oppressors and have started to use slavery of different um, people from the areas. They didn't use, they didn't put their own people in slavery. They used forced labor from the areas around them in order to build up places in order to build up in verse 19 as well as all his store cities and towns for his chariots and for his horses and so we see this story begin to unfold once again where the one who was oppressed becomes the oppressor and Gezer which is gifted to Solomon um, from his daughter the relationship that Solomon has with the Pharaoh's daughter He's getting things. And if you don't know, it says in 1 Kings 11.3 that Solomon actually had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And then it says, Kama and his wives led him astray. And so um, Solomon didn't have 700 wives because he was the horniest man on the planet. You know, oftentimes we can think of that and just... I'm sure for you married folk out there, I, I don't have that experience, but imagining being married to 700 people and the emotional uh, toll and physical toll and, and spiritual toll that would take on you would be catastrophic. But here we see that it, said, it says specifically that he had 700 wives of royal birth. So he wasn't marrying just to have another wife or to um, have sex with another girl or woman. He was marrying because of the connections, because of the political gain that it would gain for him and for the Israelites. So he's marrying all of these different people from different kings and different princesses so that he can have relation with these people. And so that actually is going to bring him more wealth in the long run. And so that's how he gets Gezer, this military base. And he rebuilds it through one of his 700 wives that he is married. And... It's interesting because everything that it seems like Solomon is doing is to is to gain power. It's to gain increase. And oftentimes we can view Solomon as one of the wisest. Um, if the Bible says he's one of the wisest men to ever live, but he still makes grave mistakes. And he still is caught up in the cycle of brokenness that the whole biblical story and what I would contend for the modern story that we find ourselves in still yet today, he's caught up in this cycle. And so it says in 1 Kings 10, 26, um, that Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. 
which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Quay. The royal merchants purchased them from Quay at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all of the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. And sorry if that bores you, but we're just got there's a lot of information there. But we're seeing this this take place again and again and again where Solomon is accumulating wealth. He's building storehouses. He's using slaves to um, build storage for the wealth that he's accumulating because he's running out of room for the resources that he has. And he's buying chariots and he's buying horses and he's buying countless things. And then he's importing chariots and he's importing horses to the areas around him. And so you have to ask yourself, okay, what are, what are chariots and horses in today's terms? And it's not, just to, it's not just a form of transportation, but the chariots and horses of Solomon's day were the, the tanks and the F-150s and the grenades and the AK-47s of modern day. And so we see that he's accumulating these weapons of warfare and he's selling these weapons of warfare to the areas around him. And so what does that make Solomon in this story? It actually makes Solomon a modern day arms dealer. And he's using his wealth and he's using his slaves and he's using oppression in order to gain more and more and more while the poor begin to have less and less and less. And so in doing so, he begins to forget where his people have come from He forgets the very thing that enslaved them and that God had freed them from. He forgets the story 12 generations ago of Moses leading the people out of oppression and he begins to adopt this cycle for himself and his own people. And then eventually we inevitably inevitably know that um, Solomon's empire, it does not continue on in its wealth. It does not continue on and it's not having any enemies around them, and it falls also in the future. So what does this mean for us? We must never forget where we came from. We must never forget um, the cost of wealth and power. And you may be asking, what is the was there any warnings? What, like, where, where are you getting the, you know, information, the knowledge on speaking to this? And I want to read you something here where it kind of just, it connects these two stories perfectly. And we're going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16. And so essentially in this Deuteronomy law, it's writing out, Hey, this is what you've experienced. Let's make some rules so that you don't have to experience these things again in your life. And so it says the king, so it's giving an outline of how the king should rule the kingdom that he is in charge of. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. And he must, not make, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray 
he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Deuteronomy 17, 16. So what did we just read about in 1 Kings? That Solomon had acquired so much silver that it was as valuable as stones, that he was building up temples and terraces and gardens and walls and military bases and using forced labor, and he was acquiring chariots and horses, and he was buying them from Egypt specifically. And then we read in Deuteronomy a, a very direct rebuke saying, hey king, and it's not saying King Solomon, it's saying, hey, whoever's in charge, um, you must not acquire a great number of horses for yourself. And you for sure must not make the people return to Egypt to get them. And hey, let's not take a lot of wives in order to gain political influence because then your heart's going to be led astray. Just as we read earlier where Solomon and his 700 wives led him astray. They led his heart astray. So here we have the wisest man on the planet, but his heart is being led astray by the, the, the attractiveness. And I almost want to use the word lust of power of influence of wealth and I want to say this that the earth is an abundant plentiful place that we live in the earth has more than enough resources for all of us however I can't help but see that the modern world is beginning to fall into that exact same cycle that we are reading about in scripture and I find it um, illuminating and actually super beautiful that there are there are ancient answers within this text that is thousands of years old for modern day problems that we are finding ourselves in today whether that be with climate change whether that's with the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer there is enough in this world to sustain us all all seven plus billion of the people on this planet there is more than enough to supply all of our needs for what we need. However, we find ourselves in a place where we are slowly killing this earth that we find ourselves in. And I, I feel like a part or an aspect of the Christian walk that we neglect a lot of is the caring for earth. And God has put us as stewards of earth, as stewards of his kingdom, whether that's physical in, in the dirt that we find ourselves standing on or that's spiritual or that's emotional, but God has put us in place and said, hey, I'm going to give you this earth. I need you to steward it. I need you to bring forth its fruit. I need you to plant the seeds to bring the vegetables out. I need you to plant the roots of the trees that they'll grow, that'll bring the animals and the birds. I need you to not pollute your waters and your oceans so that the water, the wildlife and the fish and the ecosystems and the reefs and the things that protect us will stay healthy. God has said, hey, I'm gonna give this over to you. But we find ourselves in a world where corporations are pillaging and destroying the rainforests and polluting our oceans and spilling oil and gas and all of these different things that are destroying the world that we've been given. And so what are we going to do about that? And this is something that maybe it's not talked about a lot in church, but I, I feel it's the church's call to be a forward thinker, to be advocates for treating the earth well. 
And I know, especially in Alberta, you know, I would maybe get even some pushback from that because we all love Alberta, Alberta gas. I see those Alberta oil and gas stickers on, on so many cars that I pass by. And we need to figure out a way to be sustainable. We need to figure out a way to be green. And I'm not saying that we ditch everything that we have right now and go completely green. I, there's models that need to be done and I'm, I'm not even gonna pretend to know that I'm the expert on this. But what I do know is that we need to steward this earth well. And so we have this, this earth dilemma that we find ourselves in and, and we also have this wealth dilemma that we find ourselves in. And in the 2020 Credit Suisse Global Health Report, it reveals that the top 1% of households globally own 43% of all personal wealth, while the bottom 50% own only 1%. And for me, like when I read that statistic, I can't help but think that things have gone wrong. And this is not my political anti-capitalism sermon to you all. I just think all of the governmental structures that we have created have fallen short. And this is just an exemplary example of that, where the spirit of scarcity, sparsity is always going to cause you to want more. And so this is what we have. We have the rich who are accumulating wealth at massive momentum, but there, there's no inputting into the lower percentage of the world. And at this rate, the rich are just going to get richer and the poor are just going to get poorer. But Cody, why you just need to work hard and then you're going to get the money that you need. I understand that sentiment. And obviously like this is not a call to be lazy, but this is a call for equality. This is a call for us to um, love the lowest and love the marginalized. And let's not start building storehouses. Let's stop building chariots and horses. Let's stop building Gezer and Megiddo, which ironically enough, Megiddo translated into Greek is the word Armageddon. Let's stop building these things in order to just create protection around us. And let's start pouring into the oppressed. Let's start pouring into the, the marginalized and those that are hurt and those that are broken and they can't get out of, they can't get out of it by themselves. And this is a call for us to be generous, a generous people. And let me tell you something, if you feel like if you're, you know, you're gonna, if you can just get that second car, if you can just get that dream home, if you can just get that wardrobe that you've always wanted, or if you can, you know, all these different things that, that culture tells us we need to get in order to be happy, if I can just get this, it's not gonna make you happier. There was a study that was done um, in 2010, so a little bit, it's a little bit old, but it says that it was, it came out of Princeton University and it found that the emotional well-being only rises with income to a point of about $75,000 for Americans. But after you reach this amount of money, the emotional well-being, your happiness is going to just plateau. And so we have this chart where if you make, obviously, you're going to be happier if you can put food on your table, if you can take care of your kids, if you can get diapers for your baby, if you have a house over your head, there is an emotional happiness that comes with wealth. But once you get to a certain point where you have everything you need, there's no longer any more happiness to be had. And so I guess my call and my charge to us at CLA is 
What does this look like in our own lives? What does this look like in the church body? What does this look like as an advocate in Canada, in North America? I just can't help but think of in 2020 to 2021, the US military budget was $934 billion. And I, I don't wanna, I don't want this to be a political post. This, I, by no means am I making this political. But I'm just asking the question of what would $934 billion look like if instead of building up more uh, storehouses, more horses, more chariots, more weapons, um, increasing the 800 plus military bases that the US has today, what if we put some of that money, if not all of that money into the hurting, into the single parent families, into the homeless, into rehabilitation, into the orphans, into those that are just in the lowest of lows, and maybe that's you watching this morning. What if the money, the $934 billion was put into that? And I can't help but think of what the ramifications of that would look like. And obviously this is a US, I'm talking to US statistics, but it goes the same in Canada, the same wherever the world. What does proper management of money look like? It says in Deuteronomy 10, 18, um, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. It's this, it's this heart of God saying, hey, I defend the cause of the fatherless and the widow. I love, I love those who you may feel like don't deserve love. I love those who you may feel like are the other, or they're this nationality, they're this race, they're this sexuality, they're this religion, they're this whatever excuse you come up. Like, uh, you're called to love those people because you were once those people, because you were once a sinner and Christ died for you. And so what does this look like in the model of a church here at CLA? I can't help but think of, you know, the mega churches that we see or the multi-million dollar megachurch pastor who buys a private jet and decides, you know, and to quote, um, he didn't want to be in a tube full of demons when he was going to his next ministry event. So that was his justification for buying a private jet for his ministry. You know, um, I can't help but think of what would the money from that private jet look like to go to the marginalized in his community. Because I'm sure there are people that attend his church that could have used that money uh, to, a, to a greater degree to maybe put food on their table. What does it look like at CLA for when we see an influx of money that it's not just to build up storehouses within this church. It's not just so we can make an aesthetic service for you and we can make a build a waterfall in the front foyer or we can have the, the best lighting in there for our worship experience. No, like my heart is that the, the when the influx of money comes, it's not just to stay in this building, it's to go out, it's to serve, it's to dream together about how we can impact this community in Glengarry, Killarney, how we can impact Calgary. And even just the other day, I was talking with Tim about dreaming of ideas. And I was like, man, if I just had the money to do this, this would be such a cool thing. But like buying the strip mall that's beside us and having a salon, having a restaurant, having um, a spa and all these different things. And then we go to downtown Calgary in a van and we pick up a bunch of homeless and needy people or we go into a, a, a low income community and pick up a bunch of single moms 
and we say, hey, this spa today, it's like, this is free. We, at this restaurant, let's get you a meal, let's get you a spa treatment, let's get you a haircut, and it's totally on the house, and that's our ministry. And the people that are working at those places are completely funded by CLA, and we completely cover the mortgage and the cost of the building. But our, our only, we don't get any income at all except from actual the, the church itself and your generosity. And we go and we serve the people of Calgary and we love them and we show, hey, we're not even here to just, this isn't just to convert you. This is to show you that you are loved. Here, come have some, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? That is our heart's cry. We don't want to build horses and chairs. We don't want storehouses. We don't want to build up these things anymore. Um, and accumulate wealth so that silver looks like stones. You know, we, we want to pour into the people that need it the most. So if there's anything that you get from this message, it's that. It's that we need to be called to be a generous people. And so there may be those of you who are watching this and you're feeling convicted where you've built up storehouses, where, you know what, your, your house in Calgary and your, your getaway house in Canmore is not enough and you're looking to get another house so that you can have a, a house away from your house, away from your house. I just want to convict you and say, maybe like, like let's let Holy Spirit into this conversation. Let's allow Holy Spirit to dictate our finances. Let's allow Him to dictate our generosity. God, where should I give? God, what should I buy? God, what new clothing do I need? And I'm not saying stop spending it like please hold this with attention. But even last year or two years ago, I was convicted about my spending on clothing. And I, I was reading verse after verse after verse of how material things are just going to rot away and they're not going to do anything for you. And so I just didn't buy clothes for a year. I didn't spend one dime on clothes for a year. And it was freeing and it was liberating. But it was because Holy Spirit was guiding my finances and he was guiding my generosity. And so I want to encourage you, if you're watching this, even right now in this moment, Holy Spirit, God, what, what do you want me to, to spend money on in this season? And I'm not, please don't, don't think that this is a coercion for you to give, give at CLA. Like this is our, oh, offering message and a, a main message at the same time. No, that's not my heart at all. My heart is for you to just bring everything that you have to God. And that might look like going downtown with your family and finding someone who's in need and giving them a meal and a hotel for the night. Whatever that looks like, a practical thing. Um, so let's not stockpile our wealth. Let's not, let's not be for ourselves. Let's not want just more power, more influence. Obviously we want influence. We want to change the way that people think around us for the healthy way, in a, in a beautiful way. But let's, as a church, let's think about this. And this message, I, I feel like there, it's going to push back against a lot of people, those that might be listening, just because of how ingrained with these thought patterns that we are. But as we can see, it didn't work for Pharaoh. It didn't work for Solomon. And it might it's not going to work for us today. We need to change the model of how we view resources, how we view chariots and horses and war and violence and all of these different things and i was going to talk about peacemaking part two but it kind of changed to this generosity message um but i hope this blesses you and i'm going to pray for you as we close this morning god i pray that you would just move on everyone who's watching right now god would there be conviction where conviction needs to happen god would you uh, tear away 
at things that maybe we've ingrained that have been rooted into the way that we think about finances, about generosity, about um, just allocation of where things need to go, about priorities, God. Would we change areas we need to change? Would we keep areas the same that need to stay the same? Would we give more over here, give less over here? God, would we even maybe dial back the amount of hours that we're working so that we can spend more time with our family? Maybe that's a conviction we may feel. But God, would we would we freely give as we are given? And I just thank you for your, your love that never ceases, God, that you have a heart for the fatherless and the widows and the foreigners and those that we feel as though you have no heart for sometimes, God, the annoying ones, the religious ones, the Pharisees in our life. God, would you come with grace? Would you come with wisdom? Would you come with your unadulterated, pure love that has no contamination and has no withholding? Of you, you don't withhold your love from us, God. And so we pray that we would experience that in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this concludes the morning. Um, I hope you have a great Sunday. Um, spend time with those you love. I hope you have a great week. And hopefully we will be in person uh, soon and we get to see each other's faces. But until then, uh, be blessed and be loved.